Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. I'm David Holmgren and I'm best known as the co-originator of the permaculture concept in the 1970s with Bill Mollison. Sometimes there's two stories that are told about how the idea of permaculture really came about. One story is that Mollison was my supervising academic and I was just some technical assistant who worked with him. And then there's the opposite of that, which is I was the brilliant student and he was the academic who stole my work, which neither of those are true. I mean, for a start, he was my mentor while I was working on that permaculture manuscript. But if it had been left to me, the permaculture manuscript would have just moulded away in a drawer. It was Bill who was like, no, we're going to take this to the world. The core of the idea of permaculture really came about when I was coming towards the end of my first year in environmental design. And my interests were gravitating around ecology, agriculture, and landscape design. And I could see how two of these connected, but I couldn't see anywhere where the three crossed over and intersected. So I wanted to look at that. At a seminar about how land is owned and controlled, there was a bloke there who said some really interesting things. He pointed out that the rabbit problem in Australia could have been solved by rabbit trappers, but they had no incentive to do so because they didn't benefit from the land being in better condition from there being less rabbits. So what did they do? They farmed the rabbits on the farmer's land. So he was pointing out that the ownership of the land had this really adverse effect on the sustainability of the land. I thought, God, this guy thinks just completely different to the academic ecologists I'd met. And that was Bill Mollison. I got chatting with him afterwards and I said, well, I'm interested in this intersection between ecology, agriculture and landscape design and how natural systems could influence that. 
And he said, oh, how about this for an idea then? If most places on the planet, nature creates a forest, why doesn't our agriculture, if not look like a forest, function something like a forest? Why is our agriculture all composed of only annual plants that grow and die in one year? Whereas in nature, there's a diversity. And that's exactly in that intersection. By understanding how nature designs things, we can create permanent agriculture and permanent culture in everything we do. And that became permaculture. It comes from two Latin words, permanence, to persist through time, and culture, an activity that supports human existence. So put those together, it's a persistent system that supports human existence. So Bill was my mentor. We were developing the first permaculture garden on the fringes of Hobart and persuaded me that we should publish it. But I didn't have a lot of the experience in all the different fields that underpin permaculture. And so my passion was about doing those things and building Meliodora here. Whereas Bill was ready for a larger stage and taking permaculture to the world was his next agenda. To develop the beginning of the permaculture design course. And that mechanism was really how permaculture spread, not just in Australia, but around the world. So although I was the co-originator of the permaculture concept, Bill was the father of the permaculture movement. What was or is your motivation for practicing permaculture? Uh, well, it's very simple. Uh, it's anger and actually fury. Fury I have about. no other motivation. Fury about? Uh, the senseless destruction uh, that we're visiting on the earth and, and the way people in poverty and hunger are treated. Uh, the global monetary system and its ignorance. And just generally the fact that we could do so much better and we don't. We just ignore what's happening, and so I'm very angry. <laughs> 
I don't think anything else will keep you going like I've been going, except anger. I haven't got any love in me at all, and I hate community. Part of the other thing that makes me furious, two things really, spiritualism, community. Why is that? Well, people who talk about community want to manage other people, and people don't like being managed. And I grew up in a village, and uh, people say that is a community. Well, it isn't. It's a lot of individuals following the rules. And uh, spiritualism is... I find most people who are spiritual are very greedy and very avaricious and waste a hell of a lot of time. And there's another thing. Nobody deserves what they're promised by spiritual people. And some people promise them eternal life. I think it's horrific punishment for anybody, even if you've murdered a lot of people to get eternal life, but just ordinary people should never have such punishment visited on them. So I can't stand that. I avoid all religions like the plague because just the threat of eternal life is enough to put me right off. So what's your belief? What will happen after you die? Uh, I'm the same as Aborigines. You die. You, you lay down. or Yeah, somebody lays you down. Flies come and lay maggots in your ears and nose and uh, up your orifices. Maggots eat your body and crawl off and bury in the soil. And the wind blows and slowly you disappear into the surrounding country. If you look at the perm development of the permaculture movement over all these years, I mean, you create... The, the term um, what's the direction it's going into you think and do you like uh, that direction oh it never did have a direction it, I describe what it is like as fishing you teach a group tell them to go teach off they go, they teach group you don't know who they'll teach you don't know what they'll do so they, they did it very successfully and they're still doing it so I suppose it's going on every continent. The direction is going towards the sea surrounding it, then it has to stop unless you're swimming. So that's the only direction is always onwards. Mm. And sometimes you might have to go back a bit, but not often. Are you happy with, with, that, with, the, with the state of permaculture today? Uh, I don't have any feeling about it, but uh, one of gratitude. Because there's such a lot of people I know, because they write to me and phone me and send me messages, that are out there doing what I used to do, and I'm just grateful, that's all. Mm. And what's your future wish? Do you have a future wish for permaculture? That it continues and it perfects itself. Mm. As I see, what I started as the beginning of something that should happen, it won't be me who can finish that job. I'll, I'll be dead, I'll be maggots, you know. How would you define permaculture to a child? To a child.
suppose the simplest thing you could say is an attempt to build a good place to live. To live. What's your estimation of the actual state of the earth today? And do you believe that humanity will be changing, will be able to, to, to deal with those challenges? Well, I agree mainly with, with people investigating the uh, condition of Earth, and uh, it's, it's pretty terrifying. The fact that Europe's so polluted is saving it uh, from seeing the sky, because if it did, its temperature would rise not by one degree, but six or ten degrees. And instead of having a few thousand people die on a warmer day, you'll have nearly everybody dying. So... If you stay polluted, you can live. If you clean up your pollution, you'll certainly die. So you're in a trap already that you can't escape from. So would you advise people not to have children anymore? No, why not go ahead and enjoy yourself? It's good fun having children. It's good fun getting someone pregnant. It's good fun having a kid. Have all the fun you can have in the time. You created this word permaculture. Uh, can can somebody practice permaculture without ever having heard of the word? And how do you deal with that? I did. It, it comes from two roots: per uh, permanence to persist through time, and culture, an activity that supports human existence. So, put those together. It's a persistent system. That supports human existence. It's what I told the child, isn't it? Making a nice place to live. Now, uh, we've never done that, really. Made a nice place to live. We've always destroyed things. And there's very few old systems. The Efegao in, in, in the uh, Philippines, been there 5,000 years on their rice terraces. You could say they've created a permanent thing and they're still there. But I think they'll go soon. There's too many outside influences coming in. Um, uh, somebody has told me their grandmother has packed permaculture. I thought, clever woman. <laughs> What he means is she grew her own plums and um, made her own jam and all this. And I, so did my grandma. And so did everybody's grandmother who's in the country. But they, protocols are something entirely different. It, it has to deal with the monetary and legal structure in which you're living. We set up our own legal and monetary systems. It has to deal um, with the efficiency of your housing and of your settlement. And your grandmother never dealt with that, I'm afraid. <laughs> Nor does Mr. Holtz. <laughs> <laughs> um, they fall short of being. That's my answer to you. People who say they're practicing Pentecostal just want an easy way to say they can. It's laziness, sheer mental. If they're not disciplined and they're mentally lazy, right? About Fukuoka again. So you, you've met Fukuoka? What, what do you think about him? We like each other very, very much. We. 
We walked together in, you know, forest and things, talking to each other. And we had the same underneath. He said that. Uh, he, he's a little bit angrier than me, a bit older than me. Mm. I like him. Mm. You said I like Furuno better. Sorry? I like Furuno better than Fukuoka. Fukuoka is basically is a scientist, philosopher. He's a bi- biological scientist, um, and he's turned into a philosopher. Not a very good philosopher. And uh, while he was doing all this, he also became a farmer. Not a very good farmer, but slowly he he won out on the farm. And then his his philosophy took him over, so he writes really crappy books now. Whereas I thought The One Straw Revolution was the best book I'd ever read. And I advised all governments, I did reviewed it everywhere I could, and I advised all governments to print it and give it away free to farmers. Because it's the only book that sort of started to think about farming. And nobody knows what... And, and, well, everybody's missed what Fukuoka did. Fukuoka collapsed time. And, you know, if somebody says they're a permaculture, like their grandmother was a permaculturist, you know, what she didn't have was any subtlety that Fukuoka did have. And so what he did, instead of ploughing, planting the crop, letting it ripen, harvesting it, ploughing, putting in the next crop. He simply sowed the next crop into the mature crop of the one he sowed before. He slid time over time. So it wasn't a pause between crops. Crop, crops went down, crops came up. Fantastic. And he's still the only person I know who includes time in every aspect of what he does. The first person to design anything in landscape was very probably a bloke called Yeomans who set out a key line system for catching water in landscape. Uh, There's never been a book in agriculture on design. Now, if that doesn't make the hair stand up on the back of your neck at all, do Every book on agriculture says, you know, round about May you plough up and put 10 pounds to cease the acre and keep them cultivated and, and take them off, you know, at the end of June. It's all do this now. It's all one-dimensional. Uh, permaculture is multidimensional and one of the dimensions we use is time. We learned that from Fukuoka. But permaculture is the first book you'll ever read on design of any system. And it's about design of agriculture, design of housing, design of your financial system, design of your legal structure. Um, And I found it extremely eerie that there was no book on design of agriculture. Hmm. 
How do you uh, think about or estimate the danger of genetic engineering and, and the pat patenting of, of seeds? Well, it's, it's a grave danger to uh, everybody, particularly the people doing it because they get paid much too much and they eat much too much and they all die of heart attacks. But, but then we'll be rid of them. Um, but it is part... You, what, what you're talking about is a result of a strategy applied by Henry Kissinger. And let me tell you what it was. He said, if we move food onto the commodity market and we can trade to and fro in it, we can own it because we can buy up the interest in it. And if we control food, we control anybody. We don't have to go to war or try and persuade them. We, we've got them by the short and furry. Further, if we can invent seeds, which they can plant once but never again, then they have to buy those seeds from us always. And that's what you're talking about, I think. Mm. So you're talking about a control strategy devised by Henry Kissinger and practised by the American government. You can decide yourself whether you'd like to be controlled or not. So how can we deal with that danger? I mean, how can we confront Oh, it? well, I suppose you can assassinate the American government. Um, well, we did, see. We were, we were out there when, and we heard Kissinger. And we, so we all started to save seeds that were not... Uh, were not... Uh, tampered with and we set up seed banks and seed libraries and now we have access to more um, re reproducible seed than, than ever in history because we were frightened that Kissinger would ruin the world's food supply and he would have without us some of my lady farmers in Africa grow 36 sort of sorghum and keep it all carefully set and so on. So in the permaculture system, there's more seed saved now than there ever was previously in history. So we're not worried about Kissinger. We're worried about all of you people who don't save seed. You won't survive, and you're already under the control of the American government. We, and we look at you and feel sorry for you. But not very sorry because you never did a fucking thing about saving yourself. I mean, if, if you are a sheep, you should be sure, slaughtered, surely. What is, uh, what is the situation in Australia, actually? Is, is there a GMO food there or how, how is the laws there? I, I don't know. I just know it about uh, Europe. Uh, I, I speak for Tasmania. They've got they've put a moratorium of two years on GMO food, and they've extended it for another six. Uh, other states have other. Some states have banned it. Uh, some crops are going on trial. Some GMO crops, mostly, they couldn't sell it. Nobody wants to buy it. So, and that actually is the whole problem. Nobody wants to buy it. So it is labelled if if it's no no no. You see, and this. In America, it's not labelled. No, but in Australia? And if, or in if you buy anything from America, you don't know mm. if it's GMO or not. In Australia, 
there are only certain crops that are GMO. I, I think canola oil is one. Mm. So we we never buy that because mm. you couldn't buy any. Oh, it wasn't genetically altered. Mm. I saw this film. It's called The Future of Food, and uh, it's about this issue, uh, the, the, also the patent, patenting of food. And mm. they said that Monsanto went into government seed banks and took normal seeds, not GMO seed, but just any seed, and mm. patented them. That's true. A and that's true. So how about those permaculture seed banks you, you spoke about? Are, are they safe, or are they patented, those They're seeds? Ours. Or? They're ours. They're not. They can't come in and take them. So you don't feel like I have to patent now every seed I, uh, I'm saving? Cause no, we cause couldn't afford to. Because hmm. I'm, yeah, that's we, what I'm worried about. We looked at it, you know, but we couldn't afford to. Uh-huh, okay. Mm. It's really expensive to do that. Yeah, right? very expensive. Uh, like it or not, a GMO crops have spread, and uh, it, I don't think you can find any corn anymore that isn't genetically old. It doesn't contain some of the genes that were put into corn. Um, so the damage is done for some crops, but nobody wants to buy that stuff. Nobody conscious. If it was marked, you can't sell it. So the reason why most Australian farmers don't use GMOC is they don't see any market for it. Quite rightly, there isn't any. As I've said to people, if I say to you, I have here seed grain with the assistance of a lot of very dangerous chemicals, and I have here organic seed. Which one do you want? And I'll say, I'll take the organic seed. Uh, only a maniac would want to eat the food produced by dangerous chemicals. On the other hand, I think that everybody who grows it should eat it, and none of them do. Neither the farmers who grow that sort of food nor the people who work amongst it eat it. They've all got home gardens. And the people who don't ask questions about it should be force-fed it. And most of them are. So luckily, the system as long as it's killing itself. What's the plans for your personal life in the coming years? Uh, um, avoid eternal life if possible. Uh, still stay away from anything spiritual. I'm a bit scared. I'm a bit, the Vikings are always frightened of sky falling. And I'm like that. I'm a Viking ancestry. I'd fight not the eternal life. I might get eternal life. And whatever you do, if you do, it'd be worse than seeds and stuff. But anyhow, that's, that, I think it's unlikely, and I think I just turn into maggots and crawl away, so I feel much happier about that. Um, my plans are to try and finish writing some of the things I want to write. I don't know if I'll do it. I don't have that long, I suppose. And otherwise, you know, live a good life, quiet life. A good life to me is having a garden and your friends and eating food that you want to eat. Are you going to travel a lot, you think? No, this is about finished. Probably this is my last long trip because I hated travelling and I didn't start it until I was 54. I love where I live, and uh, I felt it was a duty, uh, and I was angry. 
So, though I'm still angry, I think I did my duty. Oh, if any other individual does their duty as well, we'll have the whole earth covered. Mm-hmm. And I have students of whom I'm very, very proud and to whom I'm very, very grateful because they'll finish the job. I want to go deeper. I want to get to the heart of the matter and what it is you need to know to really understand permaculture design and how it's taught and the tools and foundation of the system and even more important, the mindset that you have to adopt to understand it. That what we're doing is we're looking around us and seeing the problems in the world and then we're learning to listen and look at the natural system and observe and learn from nature itself. Then we want to design solutions from what we've observed. Doesn't it make sense? The universe has been around a very, very long time and it knows how to look after itself. So if we design solutions that align then we stand a chance of not just repairing the problems that are all around us, but actually creating an abundance. I work on aid projects and I work with people who are suffering and it's a serious business. So I need to be able to teach what I know works and what actually gets a result. It's not hard, but it can be complicated. It's interesting in its complications. It's like a very interesting game combination. You're always trying to find new combinations that work well together, and you're always finding them. It's always revealing more and more interesting, in-depth situations. And nobody, nobody has ever said to me, it's too complicated after they've engaged. They've all said how incredibly interesting it is. It's what we actually engage in. It's what we naturally feel comfortable being involved with. And you actually realize it's infinite. It goes on indefinitely. It keeps going. There's no ceiling to this. There's no end to this. Kind of makes you feel comfortable with time. Makes you feel comfortable with infinity, actually. It makes you realize the system is, as its name implies, absolutely permanent. Permaculture makes connections between disciplines. So it's definitely a system that's quite complex. But what we do is we provide you with a framework. A framework of approach that gives you section by section of understanding. It builds a picture. How you design, the systems that you use, the approaches that you adapt, how the patterns of the universe everywhere around us, the patterns of reality, why they are formed in certain ways, is, you know, it explains how that is a formula in itself, how energy is held in certain forms and why those forms keep repeating. There are constants about the climate on this planet. There are very constant factors. And once we understand that and the difference between climates in different places, we kind of get a stronger, tighter, clearer focus on what it is we're doing and where we should be applying one sort of design to another. 
The trees are the major elements of ecosystems. They receive the energy of the climate. From there it goes on to water because the big beneficial element in the landscape from climate and trees and the energy interactions is the water cycle. And that's such an important cycle. We go on to soil because from there with so much life, it's all about the life in the soil and creating soil. And that's a big subject in itself. But once you've got fertile soil, once you're not losing soil, you're gaining soil and improving soil's fertility, you're definitely starting to be on the winning team. So from there, we go from soils to how we move it around. Because we've always moved soil around a bit. We've made ponds, we've held up water, we've made roads, we've made earth, we've, we've shaped the soil. We've been terraformers forever. From there, we can go specific to climates. The three major climates of the world, the humid tropics, they're so different. They're the hot, high sun tropics where you get high temperatures and high humidity. Then onto dry lands. They're where the evaporation is so high. It's higher than the rainfall. And they're specific and they're quite complicated. And then we can go on to the other humid climate, which is the cool to cold. So we have the three major climates. The last one there before the final is aquaculture. How we actually get production in water itself. And then at the very end, the 14th chapter of them all, strategies for a global alternative nation. How we have to use ethics as processes and protocols to govern our needs. How we have to use ethics to govern design science, how we design our communities, how we interact, how we have our local trading, how we set up bioregional currencies, how we trade together and how we set up permanent cooperation and an abundant world that we truly deserve. That's our framework, that's what we can do. That's why people realize that permaculture is a design system for the future and one we need right now to get past the issues we have. Hi, I'm Jeff Lawton. I'm a permaculture teacher, designer and consultant and I work all over the world. I've worked in more than 35 countries helping people understand how they can live in a sustainable way. I get people coming to us all the time. We have people who are bankers, we have military people, we have scientists, we have farmers, we have people from the oil and gas industry, professional people. And they want to know what they can do to survive crisis that appears to be approaching in many forms. Food crisis, financial crisis, water crisis, energy crisis, climate crisis. There seems to be much evidence out there that crisis of all kinds are approaching. I don't profess to be an expert in those subjects, but I can teach you how to live in a way that can provide your needs and the needs of your family and the needs of your community if necessary in a really beneficial and abundant way so that you can be healthier and secure and really understand what it is to live in a really meaningful 
way to survive, providing all your needs with a system of design. We teach permaculture design to people who have struggled. They find it really hard to understand. How am I going to provide all my needs? How am I going to provide my water? How am I going to provide my housing, my energy efficiency in all of the things I'm going to need to survive in a civilised way? Until they find that there is a design system out there and we've got examples on the ground. We can teach you how to survive. We can teach you how to survive without a struggle, in, a, in an abundant way, in a way that will provide all your needs. And you'll realise that if you follow this system, it becomes a very meaningful way to live and a way that you can help other people as well. In 1996, I was invited to manage the Permaculture Institute in Australia at Tagari Farm in northern New South Wales. This was the foundation institute established by Bill Mollison, the founder of this design system. It's a very complex landscape with 48 dams and six kilometres of water harvesting earthworks swales. And this property was an iconic example of what can be done to rehabilitate landscape into real productivity. It was a dry property originally and at establishment it had an overflow of water through the middle slopes of three two-inch pipes flowing continuously out through fish ponds and aquatic production systems that outproduced the original grazing production of the property in protein on just two acres of land use, leaving of the 148 acres, 146 was actually in surplus to our production on protein. And here was the training site where we put th people through courses so that they could get trained up to go out around the world and work on all kinds of projects from that site we actually established projects worldwide in all kinds of zones, not just aid, but emergency aid, like refugee camp rehabilitation and large-scale landscapes that have been totally degraded. I went from that experience on to work for aid, on aid projects in the Middle East, places like Jordan and the Dead Sea Valley, where we still work today. We established a project that became famous called, and, and it got called the Green in the Desert Project. So we went in and had a look and we thought, oh no, <laughs> this is like, this is the end of the earth. This is like as hard as you can get. This is hyper-arid and it's 10 acres of almost dead flat, completely salted landscape, 400 metres below sea level, the lowest place on earth, two kilometres from the Dead Sea, right? To about two kilometres where Jesus was christened. We've hardly got any rainfall. We've got temperatures in August that go over 50 degrees. Everybody's farming under plastic strips. Everybody's spray, spray, spray. Everybody's putting synthetic fertiliser on. 
overgraze with goats, just like maggots eating the flesh off the bone, down to the bones of the country. Literally like maggots, giant maggots eating it to nothing. So we designed up a system that would harvest every single bit of rainwater that fell on it. On 10 acres, there's one and a half kilometers of swale water harvesting ditch on contour. And when they're full, one million liters of water soak into the landscape and they'll fill quite a few times over a winter. And then we heavily mulched those swells with organic matter, which was trash from organic fields nearby. And we put that almost half a metre deep. So we saved that and mulched our swales, which were about two metres wide and half a metre deep on the trench. Then we put micro-irrigation underneath the mulch. And then on the uphill side of the water harvesting trench, we put nitrogen-fixing, very hardy pioneer desert trees which help shade and reduce wind evaporation and also put nitrogen into the, into the soil and structure the soil for us. And then on the lower side of the trench we put uh, fruit trees, majoring in date palms as the long-term overstory in the end. And then we put in figs, uh, pomegranates, guavas, mulberries, now some citrus. Within four months we had figs a metre high with figs on which is impossible we've done a course male and female course trained up some locals and we've got a translator who's working for the project he had his degree in agriculture in the jordan university and he got onto his mates and, and said in the agricultural department well you said we couldn't grow figs we got figs growing and we got figs on them you better come and test the soil because no matter what you say we're either growing in salty soil, what we shouldn't be growing, or we've desalted the soil, and we'd like to know what we've done. Um, they came in and the salt levels were dropping, so they became interested. The salt levels were dropping around the swells. They said, you must have washed it through. See, normally you put a huge amount of water on and wash the salt through to the lower levels, which just makes the groundwater more salty. In the end, you'll salt it 20 metres deep if you keep doing that, and then it will take a 1,000 years to recover and we used only one-fifth the amount of water. So the water, they thought we'd washed it all through. No, we'd used one-fifth. That really got them when they realised how much water we hadn't used. We, with the same amount of water normally used on that much area, we could have done 50 acres. Originally, people laughed at us because we didn't put straight lines in. We went on contour with these swells. They thought, why don't you put it? So you've got a bulldozer, you can flatten the desert, you can straighten So we want to go on contour because we've got a longer edge and we harvest the water passively. Then we planted more non-fruiting trees than we did fruit trees, so they laughed at us. We were planting unproductive things, more than productive things, what's the point, you know? In, in soil that won't even grow anything, so, you know. And then, and then we covered all the inside of the swell with a huge amount of mulch, where they scrape all their organic matter off and burn it, like most traditional agriculture. In the middle of winter, we got a funny email saying, we've got a problem. We've got mushrooms growing in the swale. Well, they called it fungus, but when we saw a photograph of it, it was mushrooms, because they'd never seen mushrooms, because they never had that much humidity in living history in the soil. And when you open up the mulch, there's all these little animals there, you know, there's little insects, and the soil has come alive. And the fungi net that's underneath the mulch is putting off a waxy substance, which is repelling the salt away from the area. And the decomposition is locking the salt up and the salt is, is not gone, it's become inert and insoluble. So we could, we could re-green the Middle East, we could re-green any desert, and we could desalt it at the same time. And, and 
And if we can do it on an insignificant flat, little bit of 10 acres of flat de desert, if you give us something with catchment or a wadi or a, you know, canyon or any of those erosion gullies, we can turn it right around completely. You can fix all the world's problems in a garden. You can, you can solve them all in a garden. You can solve all your pollution problems and all your supply line needs in a garden. And most people actually today don't actually know that. And, and that makes most people very insecure. Those examples led us on more and more so that people became interested and the inquiry increased and it still increases today. That's why more and more people want to know if there are going to be large global crises and you're getting results in such degraded land in small area to large area. Our design system works with the natural system. It harmonizes with the patterns of nature so that we actually repair the landscape as we provide our needs. Because of that, we're helping more and more people all of the time. From those experiences, we moved on to the new institute where we are now, the Permaculture Research Institute. It's a 66-acre farm, Zaytuna farm, and here, when we arrived, there was nothing. There was no roads, there was no dams, there was no water, no ponds, no, no tracks. It was just a burnt-out old farm and used as a basic grazing cattle system. We camped here originally. There was nothing here. The first thing we did, we set up water harvesting systems. We set up gravity irrigation from high catchment first, leading down so that we could put in our first gardens. We put in the long-term systems so they could get established like food forests. With no connections to the outside world, we set up our own energy systems. We built our own houses and infrastructure that will work as very efficient systems that cool themselves and heat themselves and catch our own drinking water. More and more people started to come and see what we were doing, even when there was a large drought in the area, that, the, the worst drought in 100 years, our local village was even cut off from water supply and only had basic water and limited amounts supplied in the street. We were irrigating all kinds of crops here to establish our first gardens and running quite a few sprinklers. Local people would come and ask, how are you irrigating? You're not supposed to be pumping water. There's a, there's a shortage of water, but we were oversupplied because we had gravity irrigation systems from water harvesting swales and, and ponds and dams uphill. We could gravity irrigate as much water as we wanted and it's a simple system, yet people thought we were actually lucky. There's nothing lucky about that. That was often the comment, but this is design. So we could explain to people, you can design a property be, to be drought-proof. You can have an oversupply of water ir to irrigate. You can have a, a, a supply of all your own drinking water. You can supply all your own energy systems. We're not connected to the main grid. We're, in fact, we're not connected to the outside world at all, apart from telephone. And now we have 
crop gardens that supply a great diversity of food. We have animal systems. We have small animals, chickens, ducks, rabbits. We even have goats we milk. We have house cows that we milk. We have beef cows. We, have an, we even have horses for an alternative transport system if we need them. We have grazing systems that help rehabilitate the land. We have food forests that are ad advancing across the landscape. We have systems where the animals help us by cycling the animals first to condition the land so that we can plant long-term food forests and, and not only food, but forests that will provide future building material. People now come here more and more for education. We provide 25,000 meals a year to students, staff and volunteers, most of which is all provided from the farm. We supply this as an example so that people can learn that you can do this for yourself. This we can teach anywhere. We've worked in climates that are as dry as possible, driest, hottest, degraded, tropical, large rain areas that have cold climates, deep snows, from the extremities of climate, from the large area to the overcrowded city, urban gardens, balcony gardens, how you can provide for your own needs, no matter what the limitation, whether it's a climate limitation or a space limitation, whether you're out in remote areas or you're overcrowded in, in dense populations. There are ways that you can design to provide for your needs and help other people do the same with cooperation. We can do this for you and now we want to teach more people because there appears to be a tipping point with so many crisis potential stacking up in front of us. It's going to be important to teach more than just people in a classroom. We're training more teachers all the time, but we feel, I feel, there is an obligation to be able to teach more people at once. We'd like to include you in that situation so that we can help get to a positive tipping point where we can help the world help itself move towards a much more positive and abundant future. <laughs>Do you have a pasture, a field or a meadow like this? Just grasses and a few clovers on the ground? Because I can show you how to evolve this into a really stable food forest system. Here we go. Let's go forward in evolution. I step over an electric net fence and here is a 50 meter electric net fence it encompasses 150 square metres of ground and we have a mobile chicken house. These are dual purpose birds. They're good egg layers and pretty good meat birds too. 
We have some feed supply. We have a eggs production. They're producing about 30 eggs a day. Their feed is on hand to supplement their feed. They have a solar panel on the roof. So it's got its own energy supply for the fence and they've got their own water supply. And they'll process this ground. We'll add a few scraps. After they've done this, we'll move them on. We'll pull out a few resistant weeds and this is what the ground starts to look like. It's just all scratched up. And any weeds that might be here, it's a bit of grass here, we'll just dig it out, scuff it out, turn it over. And this has just had a thin scatter mulch put on it and cover crop seed put in. And we're about to start planting this with fruit trees. Just three weeks before, that is what this looked like. And this is the cover crop. And here are the big little beans, cow peas. They're coming up and they're fertilizing the ground. And we've already planted the fruit trees in position. Every stake is a fruit tree or a support species. And there's plants like comfrey in here as an added support mineral accumulator. There's little legume trees all the way through and fruit trees. So we're evolving. If we go back a few more weeks again, this is what it, this is the same system. It's evolved a little bit further. And we've got other chop and drop plants in here. And if we go back again, this is what it looked like before. It goes to this. Now we've really got some mulch going down. So we've got all sorts of trees evolving. Now we can go back again and we go into a larger system. If we step back 10 years, then we go into a major established system. We've evolved so we can do this system quicker with the assistance of chicken tractoring, large scale, en masse, 10 years ago, this was bare soil. You can do this on just empty land, ground that isn't of much value. You can convert very quickly, 150 plus meters at a time into a permanent, productive, stable, food forest system. When you look at this, it looks really untidy and unmaintained, but you've just got to trust in the natural system because it's worked forever. This is the most dependable system. Just trust it, work with it. Get to understand how it functions and stacks up nutrient and, and becomes more abundant all the time. It produces more energy than it consumes in our, to our benefit. If you can live with that little bit of disorder in appearance, 
maintaining a system that moves towards permanence and abundance, we can live on this earth forever and in a system that we can be proud of and we can tell the future generations we moved this forward and we started the new evolution of humanity. This is the future and the only future that's possible. Let's do it. What a great little fruit. Look at that. Oh. That's a healthy breakfast snack. Everyone should be able to do this. Should be the, the right of humanity to eat food. Still alive. That mulberry's screaming. Makes me feel like screaming. I can provide you with a common sense establishment plan with this design system. It'll benefit the land, it'll definitely benefit you. Sure, we can teach you how to put in a vegetable garden, a food crop system that establishes really fast and actually builds good soil as, it, as you provide for your needs. But those are annual crops and you have to know how to save the seed to extend those systems. And you've got to get that right. There's quite a lot of detailed information that you need to understand and you will enjoy learning it. You can go from a diverse, nutrient-dense food garden that will provide you with a lot of food and a lot of healthy nutrition. And you can go on to storage crops and main crops where you have to grow bulk food. And you've got to understand how to go about that. And it's not that hard. And it's quite fast. You can go on to animal systems. And you can go small animals, understanding how to breed the breed stock on so you have good lines of animal strains so that you've got very good breed lines and larger animals and grazing systems. If you've got that much land, if you haven't, it's okay. You can do a lot with small animals. You can do a lot with small gardens. That's all fine. We can teach you how to do the housing and the energy systems and the water supply. Fine. But food forests, perennial systems, long-term productive forestry, that takes a little bit longer. And it's very special because this system, the larger system, the kind of ecosystem of long-term productivity for food, and building materials and fibres, those diverse perennial systems, not much recognised, need to be established quite early because they take a while to establish, but they're incredibly valuable because they have long-term security. If you get lots of marauding people wanting to come and take your system down, they're hungry, they're looking for food, they're going to come and eat your vegetable garden out and you're not going to have any seed crop left to grow your next garden. Unless you know how to save a seed, unless you know how to keep that seed and keep it viable, I can teach you that. If they see your animals, they're going to, they're going to take your animals, they're going to eat them. It's pretty hard to hide your breed stock now. But if you've got a large forest that's productive and a diverse forest, it's kind of even hard to recognise because it's a food forest. It's a mixture of food and product and fibre and timber all mixed up together. It's a whole mixture of stuff. 
there might be some fruit ripe and that might get taken but there's going to be fruit that's ripe at different times of year and people are only going to arrive in one mob maybe and they're not going to chop the forest down, they're hungry, they're not going to they're not going to pull all that extra effort in to destroy your system in, if it's a large standing forest. So you've got something of great security. You've got something that will last. You've got something that if people do recognise it, it's going to be impressive. They're going to want to know, how do I do that? Maybe you've got something to share and maybe you're worth cooperating with. And you have got something to help people with from that larger security system, you can build back to real survival again. This is a great security system. It's a major part of understanding how to build productive ecosystems as a design thread within the system itself. So your water systems, your soil systems, your animal systems, your crop systems, your tree systems, your housing systems, they all work together to give you something that you can work with as a family unit, as a community unit, even an urban city unit. Getting people to understand this together, we can do this. Can teach you as an individual, can teach you as a group, can teach you as a family. You can teach yourself once you get an understanding of the information and knowledge, we can get you into action. Let me show you the farm. Here we are between two swells. In fact, there's a third swell there's a fourth swell. There's a fourth swell at the top of the hill, an older swell, a, swell, a newer swell just above the driveway, a driveway on contour, then a swell following below on contour that's quite well treed. And there's actually a swell down below. In between, there's a walking track on contour. So there's a lot of elements on contour, but right in between the swells, front and centre in this view, you can see a newly planted food forest that's emerging here with patches of mulch trees and cover crop that's coming out nice and green, summer cover crop. Next patch over is an area that's just been mulched and planted and then we have the chickens. So we have our little chicken house where the chickens are all inside an electric net fence. There's a solar panel on the roof. 10 days of scratching in that area and we can convert that into 150 square metres of food forest. Stage by stage, this whole section between these two swells will convert into a very productive and advancing diverse food forest. We've got the dairy laneway here, and this is a really high nutrient patch of ground because the cows are often shut in there at night while the calves are put into the pen. That means you can milk the mothers in the morning, but the manure flows to either side. It's actually an absolute ridgeline laneway. Either side of that is a food forest that's been put in, leaning towards a Mediterranean type of species. There's actually plums and peaches, as well as citrus and figs and pomegranates, 
and a little bit of a subtropical mix here and there because we are really subtropical, but this lower area of the property allows you to go a little bit towards Mediterranean. This whole area was put in with mobile chicken tractors. Every move of the chicken tractor was planted up behind with a, an intense planting of support species and the fruit trees that are now the main positions. So over a period of time, the support species were all chopped and dropped and then the emergence of the mainframe food forest came through and this is now what's left um, up and established. And the chickens, many generations later, have actually come through and are now free-ranging throughout the forest. So on the left we have almost an acre of food forest reasonably well established at this stage with the now large enough for chickens to free range through out of their straw yard at the top end and on the right we have an area that's now free range by ducks. There are lots of type 1 errors you could make if you don't approach this the right way. It is a system which works with constant principles proven science that actually works with natural systems and you have to follow to the rules. If you don't get this sequence correct, you can waste an awful lot of time and it can take a lot of time to redo the process. Everybody says once they go through this educational system of design becomes a transformational event you're transformed in the way you think about the process and you know that there is a system that works for you. If you're not careful, major errors can take place. So I really want to help you move forward with this so that you will know exactly what to do. And this will work so that I can give you three major approaches I'll provide you with a video in the next week that not only shows you what you can do in the basic approach, the main three elements to start a exercise of assessment for purchasing land, rural and urban. If you want to get onto a large piece of land, how do you assess it? I can help you with that. I can give you a checklist of what to look for. I can give you a checklist for large rural land or an ideal urban garden so you don't buy a property that's going to be a problem for you and difficult to design. And not, it's not going to provide you with these resources very easily. This is something that will really help you get started and give you confidence that you know what to do, at least with a foundational mainframe approach to common sense. Abundance by survival of a good design system. Cultures that foreground ecological knowledge and background technology are the ones that are truly sustainable. And we do the complete opposite. We are creatures of place. And if we don't become creatures of place again, we will 
absolutely annihilate every place for every species. The story I guess we're telling is our household and community transition away from what I've called hyper-techno-civility, which is a hyper-urban, technologically focused, ecologically deficit culture. I guess why we were drawn to permaculture all those years ago was that permaculture was a way back to have a connection with the things that make living possible. Jasheron country in Dalesford in central Victoria, which is 130 kilometres northwest of Melbourne. And we have two boys, Zephyr, who's 16, and Woody, who's five, and Zero, our Jack Russell. And we call our property Tree Elbow. Which is a quarter acre permaculture plot that we've been working on for about 10 years. It was a bare, denuded, bulldozed plot and we saw the um, potential of it and also the affordability of it. And uh, very privileged to be able to live here in this part of the world, but also to have access to a bit of land. Step by step, there's been lots of little things, well, hundreds of little things mm. that we've given up. We talk about the pivotal moment. We call it the bin liner moment. Mm. So we had a rubbish bin, we had our compost and our worm farm scraps and our chook scraps and zero, our dog got the other scraps. Um, we put things in the rubbish bin and was always in a bin liner and then one day we realised that we didn't need a bin liner at all. And that was a big moment, just realising that we didn't, what we didn't need and what we could go without. All of a sudden it was like, wow, we don't need this and what else can we give up? And then it was trying to live without plastic and then it was, wow, we don't really need supermarkets. And, and then, then cars. And then cars. The average Australian car costs around $15,000 a year with depreciation, wear and tear, petrol licences, insurance, etc. Factored everything in. That's NRMA and RACV figures. And then the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, quote, quoted a few years ago that the average household has just over two cars. So effectively, each the average household in Australia is spending $30,000 on car use. We will go to a, just a, a kilometre up the road. Um, we've got a lo the local tip where we get a lot of our materials to build our buildings. Um, we get a lot of our firewood um, that's just discarded there and we bring it back and chop it up. 
we, we do that on bikes, with bike trailers. And then over the last year, we've turned off the gas to the house. Um, so we, were, we did have gas hot water, gas heating and a gas stove top to cook with. And then it was slowly, it was like we actually don't need those things at all. So we were was, putting the other things in place over right. a number of years. So to have a wood, a wood heater in the house which can heat our hot water, cook our food and dry our clothes and heat the home. Going without is actually saying yes to other things. Mm. So going without cars means I don't have to be a full-time builder like I was 10 years ago. I can actually stay at home, grow vegetables, co-homeschool Woody. I also run a bush school. So you're pretty much five days a week in the household and community economy. Yeah. I'm pretty much seven days a week. And so I work two days a week for David Holmgren in his office doing publicity and um, admin duties. We had this small mortgage, um, which is part of the, the big global monetary economy, and we serviced that mortgage with a little shack that we built, which is called, called the Permi Love Shack, and it's on Airbnb. Our household income is uh, under 30000 so it's considerably low, lower than the, the poverty line. And we feel we live extremely richly um, because we have time. At the moment, our bank is our wood pile and our cellar at this time of the and year. And our seed bank. And our seed bank and things like that. But our knowledge bank can never be taken away unless, you know, until we die. So um, teaching our kids that the, the, the most important economy is relationships and our knowledges. And those knowledges and those relationships have nothing whatsoever to do with money makes us extremely resilient mm. for, for the things that we face in the future and therefore we feel empowered. So money to us is not wealth at all. Wealth is time, time richness, family time, community time and, and knowledges, accruing knowledges. There's over a, probably 150 species here locally including mushrooms, plants and animals that mostly feral or weed species that we incorporate into our diet every day. We haven't eaten uh, out of the supermarket um, industrial food system uh, for eight or nine years. We can't be self-sufficient here on a quarter acre um, and even if we could we wouldn't want to be. We talk about it in terms of community sufficiency not self-sufficiency. So there's lots of bartering and gift exchanging that happens with other community friends. Um, we're members of a food co-op. We hold regular working bees at the community gardens and while they're not high productive gardens, they are learning and social spaces. Each day is an adventure and I think having a child in the house um, for Woody to wake up and he throws himself at the world. How big's that? I've been using that in two hours free. Got my first open hour and I was free. And I said to him last week as I was putting him to bed, 
you know, how did it feel to be to be you today? How did it feel to be living your life? And he said, Mum, it was beautiful. <laughs> so I think that yeah. just, you know, having a child to remind you, you know, yeah. yes, we're exhausted at the end of each day from working so hard, but just having that childlike wonder mm. um, as a reminder. There's no doubting our privilege in this situation. They're privileged to have quarter of an acre of land on Jajurong country. I think the responsibility people who have historical privilege have is, is to live better, is to learn um, and, and pay respects to Jajurong culture, local Aboriginal culture, uh, is to live responsibly um, and with low carbon uh, or positive carbon impacts and look after the, the world and plant for the next generations. It fills us with joy to live with that amongst all the gloom and all the, the terrible things going on. It was just sitting there, that thing at the tip. So we hauled it home and we knew just where to put it. For us, it does make a difference to live like this. With every bit of salt that I add to the cabbage, it makes a difference. For every um, shovel in the ground, um, it makes a difference. This is not for everybody. This is just how we're choosing to live and how we're responding yeah. to the world. That's um, really important, that we are just a response. Yeah to the predicament yeah. of, of our time. Yeah. And it might not be meaningful for other people who are mapping out for themselves how they're going to live a carbon-positive future. Mm. But for us, this feels wonderful, yeah. this feels resilient, this feels important, and this feels... Um, vital. Yeah, vital. And this feels like a very rich life for mm. us to live. Well, permaculture permeates all aspects of my life, from my day-to-day -day decisions and lifestyle, right through to how I interact with my community and the world at large. Uh, one of my key focuses, of course, is here at Janbun Gardens, where we have our living learnscape and permaculture training centre, and training the next generation of permaculture activists and teachers and mentoring them. and. Uh, conducting the accredited training programs and it's not just about growing food, it's also about working with the community. I think the most profound uh, lesson from permaculture has been small is beautiful. I know it's a shoemaker term but starting small, starting with small systems, getting them working and then moving on from there, starting at the back door step uh, so to speak and uh, really exercising a lot of self-discipline. It's easy to spread yourself too far, too thin. And I learned that from living on a very large property once. So uh, the, uh, I think the concept of zonation applied properly, not so much as a dogma, but 
you know, looking at the underlying principles of it. Uh, what do you think are some of the blind spots of permaculture? Mm, that's, that's an interesting one. I've been thinking about that. And I think it's sort of more the blind spots that people bring into permaculture. We all have our own blinkers and filters. And uh, it's sometimes really hard to take the challenge for our personal dogmas. And I think permaculture thinking does challenge a lot of our personal dogmas. And um, I think also looking at the world at the moment, we've got to tread a very careful fine line between um, the reality of the bad news of what's happening to our planet and our environment and to people, um, along with um, spreading hope for change. And to be a realist and know what's going on, it's hard not to get depressed. But then on the other hand, I see the uh, power that permaculture gives people to be effective agents of change. Permaculture needs to focus a lot more on the people care side of things. And I think there's certainly some blind spots on social design and the uh, importance of uh, the, the human element and human patterns. And I'd like to see more of a focus or a balance in terms of that together with the practical physical systems. Rue Morrow, when she bought this house, recognised the, the attributes. It's a standard, simple, small suburban house, no longer. Because the immediate things were the fact that it's facing north. North, necessary in the southern hemisphere, for the sun. So you will see shortly the way she's increased the amount of glass and doors opening onto the northern side. At the same time, she's got light from a number of different directions. So in, inside rooms like this, there is no need for internal lights, even on the dullest of days. Obviously, that's a major saving in energy use. She's removed a few walls here and there, and that, of course, has increased the spatial quality of where she lives and how she lives. So there's all these simple things by taking a very ordinary brick veneer box and simply economically using recycled materials, second-hand doors, second-hand windows, and with just a little bit of skill and understanding having them inserted to turn a simple, ordinary suburban box into a lovely example of Zone Zero permaculture. So when I looked at this little bedroom, I realised if I took the wall out, then the heater, which is in the living room, would be able to move the warmth through to that room. So I've got sunlight, which is going to heat even on a grey day and in winter. I've got the wood stove. I've, I can have another form of heating. And I cut the wall out up high because, as everyone knows, heat rises and that room will be part of a cycle of warm air when the wood fire's going. I took out the door because it was too busy and to simplify. So I was looking at simplicity and improving the space for warmth and light. If I had kept that wall, I'd be going in and out the doorway there. That meant in and out for phones, in and out for heating, to visit people. When people came this way, I've got dedicated space, which is going to work for natural resources. Simultaneously, I realised that the kitchen had had 
a wall here. Now, the big advantage of these brick veneer homes is that they're built of plaster cardboard. So for a day or two's work, the builder can come in, remove the wall, again right to the ceiling so the heat can move freely. Now I've got warmth for the kitchen. I can actually cook on that heater if I want to. I've got late afternoon sun and I have light. So by removing this wall here, it's opened up the whole section. So again, the telephone, I can have cooking, I have warmth, I have light, and I have a sense of openness. So if I had bought a brick home and they were cutting bricks out, it would be a whole different situation for, the, um, for trying to get these qualities that I want in rooms. So I'm also trying to use as far as I can, and it's constant battle and negotiation, environmental things. Recycling's important, reusing's important, second-hand goods are important. The carpet actually did stink of smoke because the person was a heavy smoker and cat wee. So I'm replacing that with timber boards made in Australia not full boards, but ply. And the choices you have are ply or veneer or solid timber. Now this was difficult because solid timber, which is probably number one choice, has to be sanded and sealed at least three times. And that means the volatile organic compounds are absolutely putrid to smell. This one I've got is an Australian product, six inch plywood, and I'm having timber floors because they're warmer, even than a carpet in winter, and I know from experience. Also because I can just run a mop with a little bit of the methylated spirits so I can get rid of a vacuum cleaner, which again is a user of energy, because again, reducing electrical things is really important in my calculations, and perhaps yours. So I've decided on the floorboards which will go down. Permaculture, and I'm a permaculturist, we say anything really important for basic needs like heating, cooking and water should come from two sources. So when I looked at this place I had to know that I could get rainwater in and gravity feed into the house as well as town water. But I also was very pleased to see this big heater because I then have the choice of cooking on gas, cooking outside or cooking inside. And with the cooking plate on that, it's going to cut down energy use a lot and it can work in two ways for me, the food and warmth. If there were some breakdown of energy sources, then I can continue, life will go on as usual, pretty much. Hmm. I wanted brick veneer because low maintenance, the real cost of moving is partly the cost of the house plus future maintenance. This has got a tin roof and is brick veneer. Now, for me it's a bit of an aesthetic. I don't like these brick veneer houses very much. So I have been investigating what it would take to put plaster on it. There's a new product now which does not give any volatile organic acids, 
which is 25-year guarantee, so it's much better than paint. So by adding a skin over the bricks in a colour of my choice, I can actually make the place look better and sit in the environment, but add considerably to the insulation of the walls. So that will reduce my heating bills and it will also reduce maintenance. When I looked at the backyard, I thought, huh, quite a few weeds, and they're all out front, and the council will mulch them for me next week. But the two main problems, the two big problems, is this huge pine tree here, ginormous, and the other one that's tall and straight but doesn't have so much branching there. So before I bought the house, I, I said to the neighbours, look, I'm not buying that house unless we can take out the tree that's on your land. And they said, well, we've been wanting to do that for years, so we're going to share the cost. And all the pines will go. Now, that is going to make a huge difference to light, access and warmth to the whole house. Unbelievably different. And it's difficult to know today when it's a little bit grey, but it will actually transform the whole place. When the tree's down, it'll change everything about the light and the... <laughs> sun's arc won't change, but it will change the sun's arc across this land. Now, if I plant it down there, it may not get sun because it's low down and my neighbours have fruit trees. If I plant it down the back corner, I'll never get down there to do anything. If I plant it near the kitchen where I can use the grey water from the kitchen and the grey water from the bathroom or gravity feed from the tanks that will go in here somewhere, where I'm looking at it, out the kitchen window, the garden will be looked after. Now, I'm going to do something quite radical for me. I've always had fairly big garden. This time, I'm going to make it very small and intensive because I've realised how little you need to plant for a garden if you do it carefully to get really good yields and be able to eat all year something. If you don't want to go to the shop, you can at least just go out to the garden. And I've always had two bigger gardens. I've always had the sense of needing a lot. This time it's going to be quite small and very carefully planted and I want some flowers as well for the table. But having the, the view onto it, it is very important in keeping a garden going well. Looking at it makes a garden grow. It's much cheaper for the environment. My ecological footprint's much smaller to redo a house that's already there than to source a new one. Um, energy and water are down, daylight's up, close to transport, maintenance low, and the house will work for me. Things have to get worse before they get better, and this time they really did. So last time we talked, we talked about water and energy and insulation, and since that, since that time, a lot happened. The first thing I did was take down an enormous pine tree over there. Now, what did that do? <laughs> it generated these little mountains. Mountains of mulch, mountains of sawdust, mountains of everything. So then we had the tree down. 
I couldn't do anything for the tree down was about shaping the land because I knew that if we took the tree down after we had big holes in the ground, well, it wouldn't work. So the first thing was to cut the tree and have it mulched and keep all the mulch on site. One is the real coarse wood chip that is wonderful on the ground and slow to break down. So that's in one pile. And the other thing I have is this very fine sawdust from the saw, and that's in this pile. So if I dug my hand deeply into here, I'd probably find it's hot in the middle and it's actually composting. So that will be wonderful for vegetables and wonderful for exotics. But for the bush plants, and I've probably put 30 in since last time, I'm using the coarser chip. So over here, I've started to plant as a windbreak. For that, multi-stemmed, small-leafed evergreen plants, because I don't want to block out the western sun, especially in winter. So those things have been accomplished and they're happening. And the other thing has been water, because it's so important. I was lucky because it was dry. So I made a decision to get two 15,000-litre tanks, and they're over here. Now, when you're putting in water tanks, you have to be able to get water off the roof. And in this case, the level of the land to the height of the gutter is only 2.5 metres. So for good landscaping in the future, the tanks were dug into the ground. So they're down what, half a metre at the back, quite low at the front. Now, I could have got one big tank, but if an animal dies in it, or it's polluted, or anything goes wrong, I lose all that water. So it's more expensive, but it's safer, if you want your own water, to have two tanks. So the first tank gets the water off the roof, and it will drop its overflow into the second tank. Now, you have to think this out before you get the tanks, because there's also the situation around overflow from your tanks because they will fill up. This roof is not huge but it will at least capture 200,000 litres a year and therefore I have to have a plan for overflow. So the plan is it will come underground and down through a stone race into all this chaos. Looks like a bomb site, I know. So the water coming off the second tank will come down through small stones, this gets moved, it's compost, into bigger stones and then the first holding pond. When the holding ponds fall, it goes into the bigger pond. So I think I've got two 15,000 litre tanks plus about another six to 7,000 litres. I feel completely safe and the environment will be very lovely here. It will moderate it because water holds heat so well. So here's the next door neighbour who has had to put a tank in according to government regulations now and it's a very good idea. But where they've sited their tank is the lowest place on the ground. If they had not cut in so deeply and put the tank up higher by half a metre to a metre just so they could catch the runoff from the roof, they would have had a lot of gravity flow from that right round the front of the house all their garden and possibly even some bathroom usage. So you see now, to use that effectively, they probably need a pump. And that's one more complication in your life. 
So put your tank so that you can get gravity-fed use from it. So what I had in here when I moved in was a shag pile carpet that smelt of smoke. So that got ripped up and with it came the underfelt. Now underfelt is really a fairly terrible product to try to get rid of. So I've saved all the underfelt and I've put it as a liner for my pond. Now <laughs> the wind blew it away but rocks will cut through the plastic and the liner so you can either use a couple of inches of sand which is hard to keep on the sides or I can use cement. There are not many options when you haven't got, or I could get clay, and that's difficult here because the soils drain so quickly. So what I've done is collect all the underfelt, and I'm going to put it around the pond before I put down the special dam liner, which is a thick rubberized plastic with a minimum of 25 year guarantee. I've already got my planting in there to screen out the roof of the house next door and the shed but it's all small, it's all understory, it's all bird related. I don't need any more huge gums here because I've got them in the background. So once I've got all the underfelt and carpet down then I'll put the plastic over and it will fill when the overflow of the second tank starts to run so I've got time. The other thing is, what do you do about the overflow from the dam? If we've got several days of torrential rain in November, uh, what are my neighbours going to say when the pond fills up and runs into their place? So the design is, in this case, the water will back up into the holding pond, the first one here, and then it will slowly move out along a long, flat race which has been designed and the levels are right that instead of the water turning into a creek as if it were going over a spillway it will actually move out like a mini flood. Now we're all happy about that because I've checked with everyone and that is probably the sort of thing that happened here before houses were built. This is somewhat of a natural waterway going that way and that way. So what I've done is control the force of the water, slow it down and provided for all those things that could happen in, in a huge, huge rainstorm and flood. Now, when you're doing all this stuff with the land, you also have to think, what will I do with all the stuff I take out? And that is a problem, because there was a lot of fill came out of the pond area, a lot of fill came out of the rainwater tanks, the two of them. So as this, as I'm now facing west this way, I looked at the north and thought it would be lovely to have a terrace there. So all the fill has gone round to this side. And without spending another penny, for the cost of putting in the rainwater tanks and the pond and the holding ground, I also have the beginning of a terrace. And I may use second-hand bricks or I may use stone, depends how much I can get, will add to the amenity and to the warmth of the house again. Because that, whatever I use for materials for the terrace is going to store warmth for me. So I'm adding all the time to climate, equitable, how I say, an equitable climate here. A climate which, although it's cold in winter, it's not bitter, and although it's hot in summer, it's not boiling.
parts of it were really hard work. Um, I persevered with the weeds, carting stuff around the front, you know, scratchy branches, stacking the firewood that you've seen. All that was pretty hard, yes. And then waiting is sometimes hard, waiting to get those second-hand aluminium windows or the screen doors I wanted that were really good quality. That was a bit hard. The day we moved, the garden shed was very hard indeed. It nearly blew away, taking three of us with it, like Mary Poppins up in the sky. So there were moments, but on the whole, it's been a great experience. It's been very good. I'd still like a view. <laughs> but at the moment, the quality in this garden is really very lovely. With the humidity, the filtered light, the green, the chooks in the background, the frogs having a thing it really is the, about the best you can do I think in the suburbs and I think it's made it a very valuable house I think I've turned something that was so ordinary people would scorn it into something that's going to be highly desirable in the future and the real secret is setting up my criteria and principles and then working to them very strictly renewable materials you know admit light store it and absolutely sticking to them. It's made it cheap, it's made it effective, and without that I've seen people go off track because they forget what their principles were. If you stick to those principles which are permaculture, you'll end up very, very nice home. Very comfortable, very easy, low maintenance, low work, low bills, you know, and a nice long-term future with it. You somehow departed, I, I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but um, it seems to me that you somehow departed from permaculture. Uh, it, looks, it looks to me that permaculture in, as a movement um, has its fingers all over you not to live, not let you go. But it mm -hmm. seems to me that you, in your career, you use permaculture, but you kind of departed from all of that stuff and you're just doing yeah. your own thing, which is um, what Bill did. Yeah? So he got a whole Wait. bunch of... Yeah, you got a whole bunch of things, and and with David, and then systematized this thing, mm -hmm. and instead of just copying that, you 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 went out and did the same thing with all the tools and all the complementary tools and all the you know. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that that's a a, a a true statement that you somehow departed from from permaculture? Yeah, so that's a that's a really interesting question, um, and I think that. Uh, like I didn't get invited to the Australian permaculture convergence this year directly. I got a sort of a generic email as a lot of people in the movement would have. Um, and I, I, that's probably a reflection of, of, I don't know, the, the noise that I've made or the lack of the lack of contribution I've made to the permaculture movement in the last few years. Um, yeah. People, people need to realize, I suppose that um, I, my original, my, my original um, space, a place in all of this was more in Keyline than anything else. And it was also in, Fuku I mean, I read in 1988, I think it was, I read Fukuoka's um, uh, One Straw Revolution. And that was a really, that was a really pivotal piece. Um, it wasn't until I read, I think, uh, Fukuoka's third book that I even heard of Bill Mollison or permaculture because there was a photo of Wes Jackson, Bill Mollison and Fukuoka. Mm. I think it was in Regaining the Paradise Lost in his third book. And I sort of went, oh, there's an Aussie. I don't know who's this Aussie guy. And then Permaculture Magazine was in the, in the newsagents and all of that. So I started to look at it and went, oh, yeah, this is interesting. 
there was a really good magazine back in the day called the, the Permaculture Edge, mm. which for me was where it was more at because, and I think this is part of why I, I won't say left permaculture, but just didn't have the same sort of enrichment from it was um, that it just seemed like it was a whole, pa- it was, it's, as I said to Bill Mollison, um, permaculture is becoming a franchise and he didn't like that. I'm in fact, he got pretty pissed with me when I said it to him, but um, that's the way I saw it because it <laughs> was, that I'm, it is a bit, and it's still, and it still to extent is um, like I talked about before, there's this sort of signature stamp design as my old late friend, Joe Palacio called the, permaculture holy cows and I just got a bit tired of of trying to reflect on that and um, and I saw that within the permaculture movement there was a lack of ability broadly I'm generalizing here there was a lack of ability for people to engage in critical feedback and I found that that was because there was a home granny inside there's a home granny inside if you like to permaculture and there's a, and this, and this is the same with most movements you know people follow a lineage you know that's why you know you've got you've, you've got catholicism you've got jesuits within that then yeah. you've got lutherans you know you've got all these yeah. people who follow a leader and you know understanding that and the phenomena that comes from that is that people who follow david holmgren as a permaculturalist um, tend to, well, in my experience, tend to be more open to feedback mm. because he's actually got that as a principle. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and that, and if you know David as I do as a friend, um, that's that's the kind of person he is. He's up for that sort of robustness. Whereas Bill, um, from my experience, whilst he was up for the robustness, um, he was also a fairly defensive person when it came to critique mm. and that follows through as I've seen um, with a lot of the people who'd call them, who I would call Mollisonian permaculturalists. Mm. Uh, I'm generalizing of course, but I have seen this um, um, quite frequently. I mean, I've had my, um, some pretty open public spats with people like Jeff Lawton and others who, you know, in Australian rules football, they're the kind of people who once you get into the argument, they play the man, not the ball. Um, and Jeff's, Jeff's a really good example of that. And I just thought, look, mate, you know, if you cannot, if you can't just focus on, I think we were talking about roads or something like that. I mean, why would you attack someone personally and their character when you're talking about a road as opposed to just talk about the road, you know? Yeah. And I just started to see more and more of that. And I thought, I just can't be bothered with all this shit. Um, so... Apart from which, you know, I have a lot of friends who are, who would classify themselves as permaculturalists, but I really did see that permaculture, I'd say it sort of worked for us for the time, but it was because we hadn't developed our own identity. It was, it was almost like we were growing up through this period, the first 10 or 15 years of our development as a, as a company and so on, we were growing up in these various communities. Some of it was conventional agriculture. Some of it was farm forest. I mean, I'm very, very much involved in the farm forestry movement and the agroforestry movement. That's got nothing to do with permaculture largely mm. um, and so on. So I've been involved with all these other movements and it wasn't until really, I think, when we started to develop the, the uh, region ag or the carbon, fa- the carbon farming 
program, which I developed in 2007-8. When I developed that, that was the genesis of it because that was where I started. I went, ah, holistic management, key line, permaculture, mycology from Paul Stamets and others, um, and Elaine Ingham stuff. And I started to put all of this together and go, okay, there's something fundamentally um, different about this and then using Yeoman's scale of permanence. That was the gel that sort of, because again, permaculture, I couldn't see an A to Z. There was no, and that's what we, I was really lacking as a process sort of person. And Bill Mollison asked me to write a book on permaculture process because he could see that that's the kind of person I was. I'd take a job and I'd go, duh, 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 and I had an A to a Z. I was, I was, where, about, to, I was yeah. about to ask that because um, yours, you have a systematic way of thinking sure. that you can put holistic management, which is already interdisciplinary in itself and you can take permaculture which also like it's got a whole bunch it's a toolbox not a tool yeah and you can take these two and put them in an, in an even greater yeah uh, toolbox so it's uh, it's it takes it takes a lot of thinking behind it and i think uh, most i come from a cultural background in brazil um i've been teaching martial arts for 20 years people want to copy they want to they want you to come and say this is it do this way do that way do this way do that but they don't want to do what you did. I think it's thinking about permaculture the way that Bill Morrison thought about it, which is what are my tools? What is it available to me that I can do something according to the context yeah. with it? And I think yeah. that's, that's a, a hallmark of your work is sort of, okay, each, each tool for each job or job or each set of tools for each job and this sort of stuff. And most people in permaculture, they want to come and just do the, Herbal spiral, do the swales, do the. It, it's a it's a cookie cutter. Yeah, it can be, and that's that that is a generalization, of course. But yeah, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. that 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 exists. Um, and I can and I can I mean, I could just see that that permaculture was becoming like that, and it became so much less focused on ethics and principles, particularly design principles. Because I again, I thought that the Whilst the ethics are noble, one of the things that I really started to think a lot more about, especially with my um, reading and theology and so on, was I really didn't want to get into the space where, because I thought um, the imp imposition of, of ethics on people and saying, all right, well, you must, thou must mm. follow these ethics. I found that that, well, for me at least, sort of took away from the prospect of self-determination. And I've had, again, these discussions with some permaculturalists out there, there where I want to focus on the individual. I mean, ultimately, it's individuals who make decisions. Hmm. Yes, we do it in community frameworks and all of the rest of it. But ultimately, you know, communities are made up of individuals. Hmm. And from my perspective, the best thing I can do is work with individuals um, in their in their community context, or in their social context, and mm -hmm. so right, well, what is going to make you happy? You have to ultimately, as an adult, make your own decisions about what makes you ethically happy. I can't say that it's you've got to care for the earth, you've got to care for the people, you've got to return to surplus or whatever. I mean, they're they're imposed ethics on people. I I, I would rather that people come up with their own ethics, and yes, they're very likely to come up with something similar, but I just, I just felt that the ethics for me started to become an imposition. And, and further to that, um, what happened with a lot of people in permaculture and still does is that the, 
design principles, which I think are fantastic, um, both Holmgrenian and Mollisonian, um, and some of the others that people have developed out there, particularly people like Toby, Toby Hemingway, who is a good friend, and I'm, I'm very much respected Tommy and Toby. Um, their principles, I think, are really great, but they're not the only ecological design principles out there. And this is the other thing that I find there's a hubris within permaculture, what I call perma-appropriation. And that, that's a play on words because you'll probably notice that so many people are perma this and perma that. I mean, they perma everything to everything. And it's like, not really, can you be a bit more original? Um, and can you stop appropriating the work of other people's, you know, call it permaculture if it was, if, if those people came up with it within the prism of permaculture thought, but if they didn't, then I think it's a bit disingenuous and incorrect to appropriate it as permaculture because that's not, that's not where the idea sprung from. And so I find, and I just found a lot of that to be just a bit boring really. Um, and so, yeah. And then of course the develop, it was, it was kind of like I grew up. It's it a bit like that, you know, permacul per permaculture was a good, was a really nice uncle to mm. have mm. and some, or a good apprenticing framework, I suppose. And sometimes what you're going to do in the development of your own mastery, which I'll certainly not say that I've got to yet, but, um, in the development of that, you, if you think about things enough, well, then you self-determine and I have, and a lot of other people seem to have resonated with that. They find that the Regrarians platform that we've developed is very useful, but it's absolutely not dogmatic. I mean, you can do whatever the hell you like. And that's, that's something that I really didn't want to go down because I looked at all of this, this, this cookie cutter, uh, iconoclastic, sort of behaviours that were going on where people were being put up on pedestals and, you know, blah, 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 and people started to get deified. And I think that's a really dangerous place to get to because, again, it takes away from individual thought or it takes, it takes the power out of individuals to think for themselves and question of themselves what they really need to do. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's the way we sort of rode. There is one catch there, Darren, which is, um, again, my background teaching um, and I've done the same in martial arts, which is very hard, which is people want you to give them a recipe book. So I didn't, and I've got friends, same sort of generation that I am and they drill their students. And what happens is they've got a biggest, a bigger cohort of people working with them because people just feel safer yeah. that are going, look, I'm with you, but you've got to figure this out for yourself. Yeah. The, the, here are the cards and we'll, we'll work this out together. Some people will, will go with that. Some people, most people won't. They, they want the, the drill. They want the... They, they want to start at card one and go to card 52 in that order. Yeah, yeah. that's right. One no. often overlooked pioneer in fighting those problems was New South Wales farmer P.A. Yeomans, who in the 50s at two farms in North Richmond outside Sydney developed a sustainable irrigation system designed both to nourish and to protect the soil. While his key line system now influences the organic farming movement around the world, one of P.A. Yeoman's experimental sites is facing redevelopment into a housing estate. Tracy Bowden reports on a forgotten hero of Australian agriculture.
On his property near Camden, southwest of Sydney, organic farmer Peter Clinch is reaping the benefits of a land management technique designed more than half a century ago by a pioneer of Australian agriculture. We haven't bought hay for the cows here for about 27 years. Usually uh, when it gets a little bit dry and we run short of feed, we uh, start the irrigation up, produce some pastures for them. The method is called the key line plan, working with the land and making the most of the water which falls on it. After mapping the ridge contours or key lines where maximum rainfall gathers, a dam is built with a system of channels to spread the water around the property. It was working from the, the natural shape of the land and how the water flowed and getting that water the surplus water that flows off the land, how to redistribute that into the land to build soil, to build organic matter, build fertility as a basis for sustainable uh, farming. As soon as you've got the right attitude and the right feeling for land, it sort of tells you the secrets. Keyline was the brainstorm of engineer and farmer, the late Percival Yeomans, or PA. Almost 30 years ago, he explained Keyline to the ABC's nationwide program. It cuts across the orthodox in how to handle water, and water is the principal planning medium. Water comes before roads and fences and everything. If you get the water right, then the roads are right, you plant the trees in the right place, okay. and no one does that. It took farmers decades to realise how much damage they'd done to the land by large-scale tree clearing. Suddenly they were confronted with huge problems of soil erosion and salinity. PA was one of the first to come up with an answer. It's such a good example of the, the appreciation of landscape design that my father had. You can see PA Yeomans developed Keyline on his property Yubani in Richmond, north of Sydney. He began with a run-down piece of land with very little topsoil and transformed it. PA's son, Ken Yeomans, remembers the weekend tours of the property in the 1950s and 60s. There would always be farm walks done on a Sunday afternoon to take people around the, around the property. And then occasionally they would have a field day that would go on for several days teaching. And there were thousands of people that would have... Busloads, busloads of people would just arrive on the property. To make the most of the nutrients in the subsoil, P.A. Yeomans also developed his own version of the chisel plough, which won the Prince Philip Design Award in 1974. It's still manufactured by his son, Alan Yeomans. There wasn't an implement that would do that job. Prior to that, farming was always turning the soil used a moldboard plough or a disc type plough and you turn the soil. So this concept of uh, just opening the soil up and ripping it and splitting it and letting air and moisture in was quite different. When I look back on, on Australia's contributions to science and engineering and so forth, if anybody should receive a Nobel Prize it would have been Pierre Yeomans. Stuart Hill is Professor of Social Ecology at the University of Western Sydney. He says P.A. Yeoman's ideas ran counter to the farming approaches of the time. The reason it wasn't accepted at that time was that it was exactly the time 
tragically when chemical fertilisers were really getting going and in Australia that was particularly the use of superphosphates. So it was much easier for the government extension agents to say to farmers, all you need to do is buy this bag and distribute it over your fields and that will be fine. Although Yeomans wasn't organic, his ideas strongly influenced the development of broadacre organics uh, in Australia. David Holmgren drew on the principles of Keyline when he co-founded the permaculture concept in the 1970s and includes the system in his lectures on land use. The contribution of Keyline to the big debates of our day of uh, water in the landscape um, and carbon and how we deal with the carbon problem of, uh, with climate change, uh, the Keyline system was and is still critically relevant to, to those issues and is influencing work in North America, in, in many other countries. So this is, this is Australian heritage. But this farm and its living heritage is about to be redeveloped. The family sold the property in 1964. It continued to be used for dairy farming, but now the bulldozers are about to come through. The land has been sold to property developer Bildev, which is set to expand Sydney's suburbs into these pastures. When I drove along the road that's out here and I saw that there was a bitumen road leading right to the base of the biggest, most efficient water storage on the entire property. I, I shed tears at the time when I saw the way the landscape and the way the landscape was being planned and developed and uh, yeah, yeah, I wept. Pierre Yeomans died in 1984, but his sons are both still passionate about sustainable farming. Younger son Ken Yeomans is a consultant, helping design sustainable farm layouts around the world. Today, Ken Yeomans is back in Richmond to find out more about the proposed development. 197 villas will go in just along this, past this ridgeline just here. Local residents have formed an action group to oppose the development. They were hoping the historic nature of the property might save it. There's a whole range of issues that none of the government agencies and even the, uh, the developer hasn't addressed. No. I do agree that uh, Yeomans should be recognised and I think that this was an important site. Heritage expert Stephen Davies was asked by Bildev to assess the heritage value of Yobani. He says while PA Yeomans keyline work is important, the property has deteriorated over the years. It's no longer a, a good working example of it. It's, there's some remnants of it, and particularly in the dam systems and in the landscape, but not as an operating system. And so the costs involved of restoring it, actually putting it back to the way Yeomans had it in the 1950s, is, is now considered prohibitive for the return that one might get out of that land. However, Bildev has agreed to retain some of the elements of Keyline in its development. There is a very strong commitment and now an agreement in a sense with the Department of Planning and the Heritage Office that they will do that. This is critical Australian heritage uh, that should be conserved and I, I'm quite scathing about our heritage system that doesn't have the capacity to acknowledge some of these things, that they don't fit into the right uh, boxes of, of being heritage. If the developers make good on their promise and incorporate a recognition of PA Yeomans and Keyline into the project, 
it will not only please his family and admirers, but no doubt the man himself. What do you want to be remembered for? Oh, well, key line. Yeah, key line. It's the greatest thing I've done and will ever do, and I think it's pretty great. Milkwood is an educational enterprise and it's a farm up in the central west of New South Wales in the mountains uh, outside of Sydney and we offer a, a range of different courses and kind of like a canvas where people can play with ideas of sustainable agriculture and sustainable living. Uh, we're learning as we go, students are learning with us as we go. There's a lot of amazing experts that flow through this place, um, generously offering their knowledge to us and to students along the way. Uh, we're learning to farm, we're teaching other people to farm, we're learning to build houses in a way that doesn't cost the earth and keeps the family safe and warm all the year round. And yeah, we're creating abundance and helping others learn to do the same. The purpose of the market garden is to produce pretty much as much, if not all, the food for, for Milkwood Farm, from vegetables to small fruits to watermelons, rock melons, yeah, pretty much anything that we're going to be eating on a regular daily basis. The key thing that we try to remember when we're developing courses is that it's about empowering students to be able to take stuff home and be able to do things in their own environment. This course that I'm running is very experiential. Uh, it's built around learning design process and design principles and applying them on real projects on, on the Milkwood Farm. To me, the number one thing is about empowering students. Um, and, and that's how we craft our courses, and that's what people respond to. You know, people come back for more courses because they had a good experience the first time. I'm Hannah Maloney from Good Life Permaculture coming to you from Nipaluna Latuita in Hobart, Tasmania. Today I'm going to take you for a little tour around our property so you can get orientated to what we're doing, where we are, all the things that are happening and to give you a bit of a taster for the things to come. Let's get started. We've been here since early 2013 and we got the property uh, because it was pretty marginal. It was incredibly steep, set back from the roads. So you could only walk up here from a 100 metre staircase to our neighbour's garden and there was covered in weeds or grass. <laughs> so we did a lot of excavations and we did a lot of slope stabilisations as well. And in 2017 we bought the neighbouring weed block which allowed us to really expand along contour and set up our beautiful veggies and orchards and goat systems that we've got now. So it's required a huge amount of work and, and only recently has it turned the corner and becoming a really productive uh, almost relaxing place to live. <laughs> so slope stabilisation has been a huge part of our lives the past years that we've been living here and because our budget was non-existent when we started we had to work out how to retain all this earth without spunky rock or stone retaining wall and so we um, put the uh, banks in between the flat terraces back on a, a pretty sharp angle around 30 degrees 
and we've used timber pallets, heat treated, so no chemicals. Um, we've wedged them back into the bank and used them to stabilise all that soil, help catch and store nutrients instead of it shooting off down the slope, while we established all these little plants that are now uh, replacing the pallets. Their roots are now holding the slope in place. And these pellets, as you can see, are starting to rot in place, which was the plan. So these banks are what we called food forests. So they're made up of strategically chosen plants which can all work and live together in harmony. So nothing's competing with the other. And they're all doing multiple jobs. So they're, if they're not creating food for us, they're feeding the soil or attracting pollinators. So it's a win-win-win. And at the end of the day, we've created a system which is beautiful, incredibly functional, and it didn't break our bank balance because we didn't even have one at that time. <laughs>
but over summer time it becomes this gorgeous uh, archway of greenery and edibility which is gorgeous um, yeah and we've got lots of understory which will come up more so in summertime this area is more of a floral understory so you can see some nasturtium leaves here but over on this side fever few is here but come, come summertime nasturtiums will, and sweet alyssum will pop up here as well we're always looking at how we can attract uh, beneficial pollinators and insects to the system and we're also always looking at how can we never have bare soil in the majority of our property. So here is um, a very, very fresh food forest. It's all very baby and young. We've got olives and fajoa as the main um, fruiting crops with globe artichokes and native pig-faced brown cover with some other floral herbaceous understory. And then we also have some raspberries and other flowers going on. Behind me I have a more mature food forest so these brown sticks here are about to burst into leaf and they're mixed currants so red and black berries and behind me I have some beautiful fajoa trees and the understory is mostly a creeping uh, comfrey which spreads out. This is working really well considering that they'll be bunged in on a very tough slope they're doing impressively well. <laughs> These are so important, we have them for, um, for honey, but mostly we have them for pollination. They're incredibly important for having edible crops for ourselves. Our neighbours who've been living in front of us for over 30 years, uh, when we got our bees quite uh, some years ago, they said their pollination, their fruit trees tripled, which is such great feedback to have. Um, so it benefits our garden, but they'll fly up to five kilometres in our neighbourhood, so they're benefiting lots and lots of people's garden. Uh, this terrace here is very much our social terrace, so it's in, on the same contour as our house. So we come out here very often and have a campfire, which is set to have one actually. And behind that, we've got a couple of different things happening. <laughs> uh, we've just been pruning back our salvia lecantha hedge, which is what all this um, pruning's from. And you can see its fresh growth is coming on really strong now. So this grows up really big has a vibrant purple flower, also called Mexican sagebush. And this gorgeous native hot bush hedge is just doing so well. A great hot tip for areas in the Southern Australia. This is a great hedging plant, grows really quickly. And then behind us here is um, a much loved cold frame. So we've been resting this over winter, but um, we're about to start planting spring greens in there. And we'll put on the other end, we'll put some uh, like bush tomatoes in as well for early cropping. So that's been a really great addition to our cool temperate gardening down here. Yeah. Now we have a pretty large garden here and while we definitely grow natives and some ornamentals, we really prioritise growing food. We do this because we're super interested in creating resilient homes and communities and landscapes. And this means that in times of disruption, whether that's COVID or the climate emergency, We've got a beautiful safety net in our home for our own selves, but also for our broader community as well. And that's why we're re really keen to share more of our skills online as well as locally, to help people create a good life anywhere, anytime.
Hi folks, it's Brett from Limestone Permaculture. It's been four years since you last visited our little farm here on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. So much has changed, the farm has evolved, um, we're in the middle of a pretty serious drought, we've got some fires that aren't too far away and making everything quite hazy, but we're going to go through and check what's going on on the farm right now, so I bet you come for a stroll. Let's go. This area here is the integrated poultry run and this services the chickens, the layer chickens, the layer khaki Campbell ducks and the breeding khaki Campbell ducks. We've got some exclusion growing tunnels set inside this integrated pen that allow us to grow vegetables without, the, without being harmed by the chicken and the ducks. It's important when considering integrated animal management systems that you try to promote natural habitat for your animals. You know, one of the things we try to do here on Limestone Farm is incorporate forest layered level systems to give them not just the fodder but the protection they require. So these forest layers give shade and essentially you're giving a stable environment for the animals to enjoy life and that's important. It's been amazing to see the farm really grow over the last four years. The design we implemented back in 2010, 2011, it has moved forward in such a way now that it's ramping up at a, at a faster and faster speed. So nature's actually taking over what we originally set up. So we're excited about that. It's hard to be full-time on a farm with an income that only has one income stream. You have to diversify. So even using permaculture principles in your business is really important. Which is a form of farmsteading. Yep. Um, you've got homesteading, which is um, making good use of your own produce and um, on your farm. And farmsteading is a way of making a bit of cash from that as well um, to keep the farm ticking. So in February 2018, we officially became full-time on the farm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Over here, we've got our wicking beds. These things are fantastic for saving water. I mean, you've got a raised bed system, has a water retention well in the base of it. You've got this wicking action that via capillary action draws water up through the soil. It reduces the amount of water that you need. You've got an integrated mesh trellis coming through, which creates a kind of a canopy. We've got worm farms in over the back over here, which build in some ecology to the soil because these things are disconnected to the ground. So they're a great little integrated unit and either on the farm or in a unit on a veranda, these things are perfect. We've only been on this property since 2010. We understand that. But one thing we know is that 2010 to pretty much 2015, we had a relatively regular rainfall that met our annual rainfall that comes with this region. That has dropped off dramatically, started dropping off at the end of 2016 and hasn't stopped. We're now down to a stage where we're not even making half our rainfall for this particular area. So you need to set your place up in a way that you've got a stable environment that captures the morning sun, is protected from the harsh winds, has land forming in place that retains moisture, retains water. So when it does rain, and it does rain, when it does, you capture every drop. You get the maximum benefit out of it. Over here, we've got our three bay compost system. 
you can have two bays, four bays, five bays. It just assists you with being able to turn your compost and keep it in some form. The idea of your compost, obviously, is for promoting soil conditioner, which is something you put into your soil for good health. But the secret ingredient for making hot compost is this really stinky uh, manure and weed tea. So we use comfrey, nettles, uh, dandelion. We use our, um, our chicken poo, usually the sloppiest of the chicken poo. And we make these tea bags up and we, we soak it for about a week and then we use it straight into the different layers of the compost build and it promotes the biology in there to actually build that compost into something really special. So guys, this is the hybrid shade house. More importantly, it's the quail Amazon. So when you were last here, it was mainly a vegetable producing area. And we've now turned this into the quail Amazon. Um, and thus the habitat that we've created here is to actually give them a more natural environment. From their height looking up, they're looking at papayas. They're looking at uh, various different bananas. The bonus we get back from the quail as well they do very light scratchings, they're little poops that go through the soil. For us, there's a nice little symbiotic relationship of them looking after our plants and us getting something back for that in return. So it's awesome. The gentleman's pissatorium, it's water saving. And the most important part is that when you're actually going to the toilet to do a wee, you're weeing onto a hay bale and you're providing urea into a carbon base. That's then removed and used in a composting process and in turn gives you great soil. This is very worthy. Guys, we're in our northern market garden here. What's important about this little area here is we've got little zones of mixed plant guilds and forest layers. In this bed here, this is a ginger crop set up. You can't see the ginger at the moment because we're actually building the forest layered canopy in readiness for the ginger. We're looking at corn as being the canopy. We're looking at buckwheat as being the sub canopy. We've got beans and cucumbers that are going to climb and then create a webbing through there, which they also make up part of the canopy. And that's going to create a protective system for the ginger growing through that harsh summer. So the ginger's the main crop, but in the meantime, as part of the protection system, we're getting corn, we're getting beans, we're getting cucumber, we're getting buckwheat. We also get purslane and chickweed to go into the salads. So you've got this ability to support the main crop being the ginger, which is the idea around plant guilds, beneficial communities of plants supporting a main crop or main plant. And then you're getting all that extra bonus food just because you're setting up that protection. Again, this is just a, a worthy example of how you can actually get the most from each garden bed. The important thing for us when we're actually setting ourselves up to be working on farm is the diversity of income. So in the early days, the first thing that we could do was we could grow food. We produced vegetables, herbs, there was some quick growing fruit that we could put out and you know we started going to markets and then slowly had you know brought in farm tours because people were interested to see yeah. what we were doing yes. we've got the courses we've got the workshops we've got the farm tours education for us would be the most important factor of what we do now we get a lot of enjoyment um, it's a passion 
And so we're, we're teaching on all different levels. Obviously, Nikki's working through um, food and nutrition, and, and I'm working through uh, farm design, garden design, um, planting, growing, you know, plant guilds, forest layers, you name it. Yeah, we're finding that people are coming here thirsty for not just knowledge of how to take food production back into their own hands, but also they are quite desperate for getting their health back on track and their wellness, physical and mental. We have consultancies, we do off-site project implementation and we still get produce sales. Yeah. It's just that the bulk of our produce these days comes back into the students, it comes back to our guests. So what we're finding into is... my cooking. Yeah, back yeah. into Nikki's cooking. I am so passionate about good, clean eating because it's not just helping me with my overall wellness and my gut health and my energy levels, but it also is helping other people as well. My, my personal experiences and my knowledge, I can pass on to help other people because there are so many people out there with that are desperate for answers to their unknown illnesses and not all of it but a lot of it can be food related not just what we're eating but how we're eating it Hi right, guys we're in the uh, Muscovy duck pen they've got protection from uh, trees that actually drop fruit for them the really good thing about these chartoots is that you give them a little shake and it provides fruit the wind usually drops it for us. We have a self-watering system up here that gives the ducks enough water there to obviously drink and have a wash in. And the excess water runs down into this pit area here. This isn't actually a pond, it's actually a silt trap. So the idea is, is that with all the ducks manure, we add a little bit of hay to that and we drag it up and we actually make another form of compost. When we have a reasonable rain event, it overflows into here and goes down into this little swale system. And this, once again, is a silt trap. So the idea is, is we're always collecting nutrient um, and that, that nutrient and that soil then gets used back in the garden. And that's important. So this is the Hills Hoist Vineyard. Uh, when we first moved here, there was a Hills Hoist clothesline sitting in the back of the place. So we've repurposed it and we've used it here to uh, grow grapes over. So it's a great vertical growing structure. We've got three varieties of table grape. It's supporting as a canopy for the sub canopy plants to grow. It's nice and protected throughout summer. The good thing about something like this is, is you get high production in a small space, which is ideal. We've got Bam Bam and uh, Buttercup here. So we're in the goat run here, guys. This is a bit of an integrated goat run. We've got vertical fodder trees running through the centre. The idea is these guys browse by climbing the sides of the, uh, the mesh here. So it's a protected zone away from the goats, but it actually provides the goats with food. We don't introduce any pellet or anything else to these guys. They've got enough here between the prunings from the fruit trees, the banner grass, the mulberry, the vertical fodder and the stuff that grows through the actual pen itself to feed these guys year round and uh, we're pretty excited about that. Guys, we're in the uh, swaled orchard area. 
The idea of a swale is it's designed to actually hold water for a period of time and slowly release it underground. And to my right, we've got a terraced area, terrace beds, and these guys don't actually hold water, they just slow water down. We've got our espaliered apples through here, backed up by some of our larger fruit trees and olive trees. They provide protection from the west. This supports and protects this little veggie garden through here. The system works. We don't use much water down here, um, and it really has been surviving the drought quite well. It's been really good. Really exciting to see so much interest and increasing interest in what we're doing here on the farm and people wanting to put that into practice in their, in their own lives, in their own homes. We're looking at probably educating, feeding, nourishing over, over a hundred, probably average about a hundred people a month at yeah. the moment. Another project on Limestone Farm is our Goat Tent Arbour. It's an integrated system where, first and foremost, it's going to eventually protect the goats during summer. So the idea is um, our various vegetable vines will grow over the top of the arbour, providing shade back for the goats. More importantly for us as well, is it's going to provide us with approximately 100 square metres of aerial growing. So here we're going to get pumpkins, squash, chocos, gourds, cucumbers. We think that uh, this will work for us and we're watching it grow right now. So we're in the kitchen garden, we're in the zone one, and we've been picking veggies out of here since uh, April, it's now coming up to November. So the gardens have done really well to get to this stage. We're in the final throws now where most of the veggies are going to seed, which is perfect. That's our time for seed saving. So we're waiting for that to actually produce its uh, seed heads and dry out. There's still plenty of food in here. I mean, we can just pick carrots out willy-nilly. I mean, there's still plenty of food to be had. So we've still got potatoes, we've still got broad beans and still some herbs to be picked and the flowers are beautiful. But essentially what we're after now is seed for next year's crops. As the world is changing, as the environment is changing, we're changing as well, yeah. changing our thought patterns and... Adaption yeah. is survival. Yeah. We've got a farm that has become its own ecology, its own setup, its own system. And we've now got the ability to be able to show quite a few, if not most, of the permaculture principles on this farm. We've learnt many lessons since us getting here. So, you know, we've been here for nearly nine and a half years. But more importantly, in the last sort of four years, one of the biggest lessons I've, I'm really starting to understand is that there's no such thing as a final design. Don't get caught up on the stuff that you can't do right now. Learn about the things that you can get happening. And putting it into action, and, and you'd be surprised once you start to live this type of life, whether it is in urban or rural, and start to eat fresh vegetables and watch nature and live with the seasons, it makes you a much healthier, happy person. This is our outdoor oven. Um, it's very special to us. Um, it took three months to build. Not only can you set the fire up and cook pizzas on the first night, but once you get to a certain core temperature, you can then shut the door, the fire goes out, and we get four more nights of cooking after that. The temperature does slowly decline, but we cook according to those temperatures. What's important also for this oven is that all the timbers we use 
uh, come off the farm. So we've got cherry wood, apple wood, pear wood, acacia timber. It usually only takes about a wheelbarrow load. And essentially we've got enough timber to then look after this and that for us brings some form of self-reliance on our ability to cook into this farm. So we love using our own timber off our farm and it makes a delicious pizza. We feel privileged to be able to say that, yes, we can survive, we can earn enough income to pay everything we need to pay, live a healthy and happy life and be where we want to be in our dream property. I mean, does it get any better than that? Seriously. Taking a bit more control of our future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And our so family. It, you know, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. We've got so much more to do here, and I think that's, that's the beautiful thing. You, you never not want to have something to do. Yeah. So you always want the challenges. You always want something to strive for. And for us, we just think that this is this place, this, this property, has so much to offer to us back and we've got so much to give to it and we'd like to think that maybe in a few years time you'll come back and check that out. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, you can do three simple things right now. One, you can subscribe to Permaculture Freedom Podcast if you haven't yet. Number two, you can leave a short review for us on iTunes. And third, Share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, take care, my friend.